The Huffington Post asked the question, what wakes you up in the morning to Americans? After thousands of responses, they narrowed down that list um, that they felt represented uh, the overall responses of the American public. Um, And here's how America answered the question, what wakes you up in the morning? One said, a chance to see the sunrise. Another said, because I am alive and there's there's something new to be explored and learned and observed in the day to start. One said, the promise of coffee and uh, that to take on my uh, spirited personality of my four-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Um, Another said, because I still can, and I know that someday in the not-so-distant future, I may not be able to wake up anymore. Uh, And God wants us to live our today. Uh, And then a final just said that. Um, What wakes you up in the morning? They said, God. So how would you answer that question? What wakes you up in the morning? For some, you might quickly say something spiritual, right? My walk with Christ, thinking, well, isn't that the right answer? For others, you might scratch your head for a moment, quickly think of your favorite hobby and say, yeah, that's that's what I'm passionate about. That's what wakes me up in the morning. For others, your shoulders may slump. Uh, The smile on your face may drain. Uh, Because deep inside, you're thinking, you know what? I really have no clue what wakes me up. Most mornings, I have to drag myself out of bed. The only reason why I wake up is because the alarm won't, can, won't uh, stop going off, right? I keep hitting snooze, and it just keeps coming off every five minutes. You think, well, I've got to wake up, because if I don't wake up, uh, man, I might lose my house because I didn't go to my job, or my kids might not be taken care of, or, or something worse. You see, at the heart of the question of what wakes us up in the morning is our, our passion, Now, passion, defined in the dictionary, can be um, said to say a strong and bearable, barely controllable emotion. So whether or not you know what it is, um, there is something that you are passionate about. The driving force of what is waking you up in the morning. Truth is, though, for many of us, our passions are in the wrong place. As we learned last week, we are often seeking the things that will will not last, um, We are, as uh, some would say, a mere vapor in eternity. Or as Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, says the teachers, everything is meaningless. For many, though, our answer to the question of what wakes us up in the morning has been skewed by uh, by Satan, by our adversary. He wants uh, our greatest of emotions to be fervently put into things that will not last and ultimately will let us down. Now, the adversary uses these misguided passions to trip us up, the, these things to, um, to, to skew what we, we, would, uh, we would need to be doing, to frustrate us and to give us a lack of fulfillment. Um, but he seems to always constantly draw us back to them. I, I call those things trippy passions, and the first one is this. I think there is a trippy passion of stimulants. Now, when Matt and I sat down and talked about this series, and he said, hey, I want you to answer the question of what wakes you up in the morning, um, I thought of the jingle, right? The best part of waking up is soldiers in your cup, right? And that's what I was thinking. Now, I know some of you in here are shaking your head. You're going, absolutely, that is totally me. There was somebody that told me that this morning. They said, yes, coffee is the thing that wakes me up in the morning. Um, And for some of you, you're saying, yeah, don't dare touch me until I have my cup of coffee, right? Right? Now, as if that liquid returns you from Jekyll to Hyde, right? And while we joke about coffee being a stimulant, I know there are people in this room that are living for these type of things in their life. Um, 
they are, if somebody was to follow you around, they might find themselves um, pleased by a consumption of alcohol to an extreme. They might find themselves um, running to uh, nicotine of some form. They, they might fill the void with, with food or, or some sort of illegal drug. For others, their stimulant is not so much uh, the things that they put into their body by their mouth, but the things that they put in by their eyes, right? Uh, Their favorite television show. If they're not home at 8 o'clock and their show gets on and they miss it, they're going to be so upset. So they have to DVR it and they have to watch it and sometimes they watch it multiple times, right? They've got to get home for that that favorite show. Or, Or maybe they sit in front of that phone and constantly you're flipping through your Facebook and you're looking through those things and you're you're drawn to the Pinterest or whatever that may be. Um, you are, are looking over. Or maybe when nobody else is watching, you feed your sexual urges with the cheap stimulant of pornography rather than in the healthy confines of the marriage covenant. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet talks about people that struggled with these things. He says, Ah, you who rise early in the morning in pursuit of strong drink, who linger in the evening to be inflamed by wine, who feasts consist of lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine, or as the Apostle Paul said it, put these things to death. Stimulants let us down. They leave us wanting more. And the same reason, that's the same reason Jesus told the woman at the well this. He said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's saying that nothing is going to bring that fulfillment that only I can bring. There's a void in our heart that only God can fill. So whether it's caffeine in the morning, food in the afternoon, alcohol in the evening, or porn when nobody is watching, these cheap stimulants will always leave us hungry for something else, for something more. They may fill a a temporary void, but they're never going to give us the true fulfillment that the Word of God and God Himself can give us in Christ Jesus. I think that's what Paul had in mind when he talks about it in his letter. He says, I strike my body, um, I I give it a blow to make it my slave. I think he was saying, I will never become a slave to some sort of stimulant in this world. My body will never tell me what I need. I will tell my body what I need from it through the Holy Spirit's power. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I will drive this thing through God's power to do what I need to do to serve and live out my passion in life. But, but second, I, th- I think we get tripped up on the, uh, the passion, uh, the trippy passion of emotions. Now, as a kid, I was... Uh, Christmas was a, a special thing to me. Uh, Christmas time come around, and man, I just lived uh, for the moment of Christmas Day. Um, I was not the kid who would cheat the system. I, and I mean that. I really was not the one that would sneak into mom and dad's room and uh, snoop around and look at packages early before Christmas. Instead, the anticipation of Christmas um, was what I longed for. It was the thing that I most desired to be a part of. I would lay in bed all Christmas night wondering, what could be under the tree for me? Was it a new remote control car? Was it the latest pair of Nike shoes? Or, or maybe it was the keys to my very own dirt bike, right? I would count the seconds as I watched the blue alarm clock with Garfield on the back. I would count the seconds going by. Um, and then I would scream uh, at my mom and dad, can I get up now? Uh, to which I had a set time. They always told me, you can't get up till 7 o'clock. But at 5 a.m., I was in there trying to wake them up. And then I would run out, and I would see this heap of presents, and I'd be excited. I lived for that emotional moment of Christmas morning. 
Now, as a minister, I've learned that there are people like this. Some of you in this room are people that live off of your emotions. Um, For some, you might even be considered a drama king or queen. You are emotionally driven people. Good, Good things drive you, right? You get a new job and you're happy about that. You're excited about that. Uh, maybe uh, there's been a new baby born into your family, and you are excited about that new adventure of being a grandparent or, or being a parent again. Or, or it's, uh, it's a new car. You get a new car, and for a few months, man, it's like, man, that car is the best thing you've had. It's awesome. Your smile's all around. You see, something like that, that, that's the things that pump you up. You live for these emotional highs, these feel-good moments, and you're, you're driven by those things. Bad thing is, you're driven by the opposite emotions as well, right? Uh, the good um, also comes to bad at times. And these unguided passions will s- leave you sad or frustrated because you lost a job. Or the cute baby constantly is waking you up at 2 in the morning, and now you're like, I- I'm not sure about this. And the car that was so nice, well, it turned out to get dusty and dirty like the rest of them you've owned, but now you just have a bigger car payment. You see, the bad thing about living on emotions is they go both ways, right? Happy turns to sad, and and anger can turn into excitement. But emotions will never bring you stability. Paul fleshed this out uh, in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 12 uh, and 13, it says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. You do know what he's saying, right? He's saying, you know what, I I don't find my my contentment in in the status of my bank account or or even my emotional well-being. Instead, I find my contentment in Christ. Why is that so important? I think it's important because, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one thing in our life that will always be consistent. He will never change. Meaning, you don't have to live by your emotional stability, but instead by the steady and firm hand of, of the God of our days. We are going to find a much deeper and more satisfying joy when we live by by the steady, firm hand of God. Look, there's nothing wrong with being emotional. I think it's a part of life. Be honest, I think that's a part of how God created us, right? We are created in the image of God. I think God created us to be emotional beings. You look through the book of Psalms, and you're going to see, right? There are tons and tons of scriptures of this guy going up and down, life, emotion coming to these people. But know this. God never meant for our vitality and our faith to stand on the shaky ground of our emotions. We serve a God that in the scripture is called a strong tower, a a mighty fortress, an everlasting father. That means in the good and in the bad, we can find our stability and our strength in God. But third, I think we get tripped up on these these passions of adventure. Now, how many of you have got your, your spring break or your summer vacation plans set up, right? You're excited for those, uh, those special uh, plans you got, or if it's not the, the spring break trip, it's, man, you just can't wait to get the old boat out, take it down to the boat slip, get it in there, and 
Go cast out that reel and rod and catch the big one this year. You're just looking forward to it. You're like, man, more of this white stuff. I'm done with the snow, right? You're looking forward to the, the next big thing. Or since it's Valentine's Day, ladies, maybe you're waiting for the knight in shining armor to show up at your, your feet. But right now, all you see is a bunch of putzes looking for girls for all the wrong reasons, right? You know, oftentimes, we are looking for the next big thing in life, the next great adventure, And because of that, we can never be satisfied with the right now. As one person put it, instead of wondering when your next vacation is, maybe you should set up your life in such a way that you don't have to escape from it. It's true, when you you live for tomorrow, you miss out on today. As James said, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money, like you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. You know, for me, I I find that this is one I often get trapped in. I'm not sure if it's just part of being a young adult uh, or struggling with everyday life, um, but for a long time, I've always been looking for the next big thing, right? As a high school age um, student, it's, yeah, I want to get my license, the next big thing. It's going to be an exciting adventure. I'm going to graduate from high school. I'm going to go to college. Uh, I'm I'm having a serious relationship. Oh, I'm getting married, Oh, man, I'm going to buy my first motorcycle. Ooh, I, I'm going to uh, start my first job. Uh, oh, we're going to purchase our first home. Or, oh, man, we're expecting our first child. And now all of a sudden, all these big events in my life have gone, and I'm going, what's next? What, what, what now? Right? I'm in it for the long haul, but, but what's the next great adventure? I count down to riding season so I can ride my motorcycle or, or a vacation. But all along, God is telling me, Evan, Would you just stop for a moment? Would you recognize what you have today and what I'm doing in your midst right now? And would you live for this moment instead of for the next? As Jesus said it in Matthew 6, verses 33 and 34, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He's saying, it's time to live for today. Seek me daily. Forget about tomorrow. I hold tomorrow in my hands. I gave you today. Would you just live for today? You know, God gave us free will. He gave us the ability to to make decisions. What we do with our lives, our time, our passion. But Satan prowls around looking to devour that free will, to make us a slave to some sort of substance, to chew us up with the ups and downs of this emotional journey that we call life, or to make us think that the next thing, that's when I'll be satisfied, that's when I'll feel good, that next adventure, yeah, that's right around the corner, that's, that's when I know I'll have made it. Which leads us to the question, how would God answer the question, what wakes you up in the morning? How would God want his people to answer that question? What is your passion? You see, when our passion meets God's purpose, that's when we truly begin to live. Truth is, your passions are likely already a part of your life. They don't have to be something extravagant, like you might think. It's something that you most enjoy. Uh, Who God created you to be. Our very own Tom Watson put it this way, we all have addictive personalities. We're just addicted to the wrong things. God wants us to be addicted to him. 
and why you won't open the Bible and find somebody verbatim asking the question to Jesus, well, what should wake me up in the morning, Jesus? I can tell you this, if you study out the Word, when something is repeated constantly, very repetitive in Scripture, that means it's important to God and thus should be important to us. And the things that are important to God are this, to love Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We talked about that last week. And to love others as ourself. To love God and to love others. If that is at the foundation of what you do in your life, then you will find your passion. That's why I think we should be passionate about our, our jobs. Now, I know just the mention of the job leaves some of you rolling your eyes thinking, gosh, I despise my job. As lover boys, the Lover Boy song goes, everybody's working for the weekend, and I'm definitely working for the weekend. Bad thing is, the weekend always ends, and there's always another week to live. Look, I understand that not everyone likes their job in this room. You wish you worked somewhere else. That doesn't mean you, you can't be passionate about your work, though. If you're not satisfied with your work, start searching after a new job. There's nothing wrong with that. But in the meantime, as Proverbs says in Proverbs 16, verse 3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. You see, every job that's represented in this room has a purpose in the scope of humanity and in the scope of eternity. From the fast food worker to the nurse to the coal miner to the wastewater treatment plant specialist, right? They all help people in some form. God's greatest desire is for us to be in relationship with him and relationship with others. So matter, no matter if you love your current job or you hate the thing you do right now, you can love God in the midst of what you are doing and you can serve other people as well. In the book of Colossians, Matt read it earlier this morning, it talks about doing your work with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not human masters. You see, the average person works over a third of their waking hours. Your life is going to be miserable if you continue to despise that job. Take a fresh perspective. Recognize that God has a ministry for you in the midst of that job, an opportunity for you to lift him high and to encourage others in the midst of the daily grind that you call work. Who knows, you might just begin to love what you do a little bit more. But second, I think we learned this, that we should be passionate about our families. I think the family is of the greatest ministry God has entrusted to us as human beings. Minister Wayne Kendero said this. He said, someone once said that the darkest place of any lighthouse is always at its base. The same can be said of our families. Often Christian leaders can shine a radiant beam out into the horizon, warning passing ships of dangerous waters while their own unmaintained plumbing floods their home. He's saying that of all of our passions, to share Jesus... Um, the ministry to our family has to be of fervent importance. Of all the things that we could, we could love, the family that God has blessed us with has to be of the greatest importance to us. First, your spouse. Now we're here celebrating a day of Valentine's Day. Hopefully all you men got up and made breakfast and bread uh, for your, your women. And I'm like, oh man, you just let us down. Evan, why'd you say that? Yeah. In the book of Ephesians, uh, in, in chapter t- uh, 5, verses 22 and 25, um, it, it says this. It says, Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, when I sit down and counsel with uh, uh, 
couples that are planning to get married, engaged um, couples, and or or somebody that's struggling in their marriage, I often turn them to these scriptures. And obviously, the quick response, uh, the woman gets a little bit hung up on that, that term submission. Uh, the man sometimes will like to lord it over her. Oh, yeah, see, you're supposed to listen to what I say. Let me tell you this. The scripture, if you understand the cultural context of what that scripture is written in, it totally uh, blows that, that idea out of the water. Women were viewed as property in that day. Um, they were not important, um, and I know that's not the right way. That's not the right thing. Um, and for that reason, uh, for a woman to submit to her husband, it wasn't a question. She was supposed to do that. Now, he's being, they're being challenged to do that out of reverence and respect, for not only for the man, but for the Lord. And then the man, think about this. Uh, something that he has viewed as almost an asset of his, it's now being, he's being told to love that thing sacrificially, to give his life up for her. Men, the greatest, uh, the greatest desire of your, your wife or your, your significant other is, is to be loved. She wants to know that you love her. And, and women, the greatest desire of your man is to be respected. He wants to know that you're grateful that he, he strives to provide for your family, that he, he's working hard to, to try to lead your family. And he's not perfect. He makes mistakes, but he wants to know that you respect him. Um, how he is, he is putting his effort to that. It's the root, at the root of everything that men are driven off of is respect and women are driven off of is love. And that's why the scripture points that out to us. It goes on in the, the book of Malachi in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Well, godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. I think that's important to say. God desires you to be one in spirit, yoked together and trotting the same path with one another so that you can raise up the next generation, right? The gospel is truly one generation away from being extinct. So parents, love your children. Teach them. Lead your families. The church has a desire to raise up a good generation of faithful young leaders, but the truth is, the mom and dad, you as parents, have the greatest responsibility, and you will be the ones that answer for what you teach your children. Now, the church can spend a couple hours on a Sunday morning or an hour throughout the week, um, but that is not going to be enough of Christ for your kids. You need to be that example. You need to be leading them. You need to be teaching them. As the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verse 19 says, in Deuteronomy eleven nineteen it says, Teach them to your children. It's talking about the commands of the Lord. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. That sounds like pretty much all the time, right? Everything you do, teach those things to your children. Make Christ known in your home. Give them a 1 Corinthians 13, 13 philosophy, right? That says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Teach your children to have faith in Jesus, that they can have security knowing that they are accepted by the Lord, loved unconditionally, and they can have eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. Help them to understand hope. Hope that their struggles will not last, that they can and endure, and God will triumph in eternity. It's not a question of if, it's only a question of, of when, and love your children. Love them in such a way that they hear you say, we have loved you, we do love you, and we will always love you. Your love teaches them about God's love. And on the flip side of this, 
Children, students, respect your mom and dad. Honor them. Know that they are striving to do these things, and sometimes they make mistakes. They are not perfect people. And even us as grown uh, children, we're called to respect and honor our parents. Deuteronomy 5.16 says, Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you. Listen, it doesn't say honor them if they were good to you. Honor them if they were uh, perfect parents. It just says honor them. So we need to take care of our, our elderly parents. We need to help them out when they're struggling. We need to love them even when maybe they didn't love us. Family is one of the greatest gifts of, given to us. A gift that is meant to be cherished and cared for. And your voice into your family's life can be used for the glory of God. So allow your passion and your love for the Lord to be intertwined with God's purpose um, in loving your family. But third, I think we learn this, that we are called to be passionate about the church. God wants us to be passionate about his church, about one another, those that call Christ Lord. How do we know that? We know it uh, from a scripture in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3. Now, I remember the, the first time I studied out this in Mark 3, so I'm going to ask you guys to go ahead and turn over there with me. Mark 3, um, verses 31 through, uh, through 35. I remember the room I was sitting in, the um, professor at the time that was teaching um, as I was studying through this, and um, I think this is really important to see. It says, in starting verse 31, chapter 3, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, or my brother and sister and mother. Now listen. He is not saying we shouldn't love our families. We just, we just spoke about that. What he is saying is the blood of Christ runs deeper than the blood in our veins. You are my mother and brothers and sisters. The day we both committed our lives over to Christ, we and our lives became intertwined, devoted to one another, as they say in the book of Acts of the early church. So for some of you this morning, that means it's time to start taking the next step. Stop marking the card on Sunday morning that, ah, you know what, I think I want to get a little more involved. Stop hinting at the idea of, ah, you know what, I think I'm going to connect in a small group. Stop thinking, you know what, someday I might dig a little deeper and, and get involved in one of those Bible fellowship classes where I can get to know some other faces. Don't try to run out of here so quickly at the end of service this morning. Stop for a moment. Stick around. Try to connect. Build a relationship with somebody so that a relationship that will last far beyond uh, uh, our, our life here on earth and into eternity so that you can be encouraged and uplifted by the church and allow the church to be the church to you. You know, for many, we think that, that passion demands one big act. Truth is, it demands a lot of small acts. How you work daily when nobody is watching do you cheat on the time card? Do you do just enough to get by? Or, or do you do your work as if the customer was God and your co-workers were loved by Jesus, the one that you call Savior, because they are? Uh, do you shower your spouse with love and respect? Do you show your children what it means to have grace and courage? Do you give your parents honor and respect? And what about God's church? 
the thing Christ died for, the people of His body, the ones who have yet to come to know Him. You know, Solomon did say, meaningless, meaningless, says the teachers, everything is meaningless. Yes, he was talking about the grind that is daily life, meaningless, without a passion to live for. But when you see the meaninglessness in the scope of eternity, it's not so meaningless anymore. That's why he concludes in verse 13, just a few verses later, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So what wakes you up in the morning? When your passion meets God's purpose, that's when you will truly begin to live. God wants all of you. As Paul said, for me to live is what Christ, and to die is gain. Paul was saying, my faith, my relationship with God is my passion. When that becomes your driving purpose in life, that's when you will truly begin to experience the life God has intended for you. So for some of you this morning, it's time to take the first step. You need to make Christ the greatest of passions in your life. To die to your current way of living, right? To, to be buried with Christ and raised to walk a new life. That's what that symbolism of, of baptism means. Or as the Gospel of Matthew says in this paraphrase, anyone who intends to come with me, they got to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow. Follow me and I, I will show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. For others, you need to search out your passions, but, but recognize all along uh, that the path of God has always been intended for your passion and His purpose to intertwine, for you to, to love Him with all you have and to love others and to draw them along the way with you. As 1 John 4, verses 11-12 through 12 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one ever has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. You see, we all have steps of faith to take because when something is your passion, remember what it was defined as? A barely controllable emotion. It makes you want to move. makes you want to do something about it. makes you want to live a little bit differently. And there is something that is driving you daily to you that, for you to wake up to. So press into that thing. Do it for, for God's sake. Love, love God. Love others. And draw people to Him. God's got a passion for you. He's got a purpose for you.